morning again. Thank you. If you're visiting, my name is Peter, and I serve on the team, the team of elders that leads the church. Today we're in week two of our preaching series called The Remnant. The Remnant. All human history is redemptive history, where God is saving sinners and gathering a remnant for himself by raising dead people to life. Now, in all of history, humans have had to see through a limited scope of what God's doing, see what we see, but then walk by faith based on what we know as evidence of what God's doing, lest we walk in despair about what we don't see or don't understand him to be doing. God is always preserving a remnant. We can see enough to trust him and grow in him. Amen? We're going to move on in Romans chapter 9. I'm going to ask you to stand to your feet to honor God's word. Today we'll read Romans 9, verses 19, all the way through verse 33. You will say to me then, Why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us? whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there I will, they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, Only a remnant of them will be saved, for the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have become like Sodom and like Gomorrah. Verse 30. What shall we say then? That the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness, have obtained it, attained it. That is, a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it with faith. But as, it were based, as if it were based on works, they have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. The word of the Lord. Y'all can be seated as we pray. Thank you, God. 
Jesus, thank you for your word. Please add a supernatural blessing to the reading of your word that's beyond my best thoughts or words or preaching and way beyond our best pondering. Help us. Help us know what we're supposed to know today and to discern what we should be at peace in not knowing and give us wisdom to powerfully differentiate between the two so that we would walk in explosive kind of peace as your children. Amen. If you're taking notes, this message is entitled Creator, Redeemer, Restorer. For the second consecutive week, we're going to be in Romans 9, which is easily one of the most difficult chapters in all of the Bible. But I said last week that often it's the most difficult parts of the Bible that uniquely have the capacity to display the most glorious attributes of God and to trigger the most profound and deep moments of revival inside of you and then through you to others. So let's be brave and dig deep, shall we? Okay, one person. Anyone else? Y'all, this is a talkback church. See, we know we're not, we're not an audience here. We're a congregation, so you need to help me be brave too. One other thing. Whenever we stand before you and preach, either on a hard text like this or a hard topic like racism or sexuality that we tend to preach about, preachers like me are primarily responsible before God. To, the, to do the best we can to, to preach what we know and believe and understand. But please hear me. There are godly, articulate, brilliant preachers that are wonderful Christians that think differently than me. I know this is a shocker. But what that means for you is that you're not responsible to understand everything exactly the way I understand it but you are responsible to listen and obey what the Holy Spirit is calling you to listen and obey through the preaching and, more importantly, through his word. Amen? And besides, our Christian unity and our fellowship together, our relationship is not dictated by a uniformity of thinking. That's a cult. Our unity is dictated, rather, by a mutual submission to a good God and our trust in him. And so we can wrestle together on things that we don't see eye to eye on and all the while have beautiful, harmonious relationships. Amen? And and what you'll find too is that as you grow in God, you will sometimes be inclined to disagree with yourself and change your opinion from time to time. And that's okay because that's what it means to humble yourself and to repent and to grow before God all the time no matter how old you are. So I'm not going to hold you to a standard of perfect agreement with me in order to walk with me, and I expect that you don't hold me to that same standard either. Instead, we can mutually submit to the same God in this same church and and agree to follow him as we honor God and make disciples and set the world upside down with the powerful, irrevocable love of Jesus Christ and still not agree about everything. All right? Amen? Yeah? Okay. Just making sure you're tracking. 
And so this is a posturing that we need, especially when we go before God. Verse 19 gets right to that point. In light of the greatness of our almighty God, human beings are wise to posture ourselves appropriately and submit even our greatest thoughts, whether you have the burden of some, of having really, really smart thoughts, or other burdens like me. Regardless of your best thoughts, you need to submit them before God. We need to say, God, I trust that you know better about the world and the universe, and you have a glorious kind of wisdom. See, it's, it's deadly, and it's dangerous to posture ourselves before God in any other sort of way, no matter what generation we're in and what part of the planet we're in. So this scoffing question in verse 19, Paul kind of brings up and exposes. I tend to think that he must have been getting this question in response to his frequent preaching about the sovereignty of God, which is to say the amazing, all-powerful control of God over the universe. He had just boldly asserted, as our last verse from last week, of course, when Paul was writing the letter to the Romans, he didn't stop, you know, and just 17 or 18 verses out at a time. He just had a whole, thing, a whole thought. And the verse in verse 18 was he said, does not God have the right to soften the hearts of some? Literally to have mercy on whom he chooses, verse 18 says, and to harden those he chooses. In this case, specifically referring to Pharaoh, the, the leader of Egypt, the oppressor of Israel, And so the question often exposed that Paul brings about is, verse 19, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault for? Who can resist his will? And this is more of that kind of fatalistic determinism cop-out that I attempted to redress last week. You know, kind of in essence, you know, if God knows everything and he has power over everything, then I'm not accountable for my sin. He, quote, can't find fault fault. Because if he's in control, then I have no control, and so no responsibility. And that's, that's the argument. And I would want to reply with, no, that's a false dichotomy, and, and get it directly. Take it right on. But Paul rebukes the jeering sentiment without directing it directly, addressing it directly. He doesn't dignify this argument. Check out what he does in verse 20. But who are you, O oh man? To answer back to God. Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Verse 21, has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? Let's first thank What do these verses say about creation? Everyone say creation. This this clay metaphor doesn't suggest that we're inanimate clay pots. We're humans. We have minds and wills. But what it's saying is that we are creatures nonetheless. This should humble us. 
This isn't Paul questioning God's motives, saying like God maliciously makes some things for dishonorable use. This is saying as creatures, we don't have the right capacity to ultimately declare what is honorable, what is dishonorable, what is important, and what is not important. God is the one who makes us. What we think is not important sometimes might be what's most important. Hello, moms. Shout out to all y'all. We don't have the right scales for measuring what's important. And that's the point. We're creatures that should submit to God as a glorious creator. That's what Paul's saying here. He's not responsible to answer to us. We're responsible to answer to him. And then Paul digs in even deeper and goes on this one of five or six great pivot points in Romans. He goes deeper into the creator's justice and wrath. Y'all ready here? Verse 22. Thank you. You're ready. I'm preaching to you. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and make his power known, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? In order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared. By the way, it's the only active verb of the use of the the word prepared. He has prepared beforehand as vessels of mercy. Verse 24, even us whom he has called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. Now let's slow down and ask, what do these verses say? about the fall, about sin. First of all, I don't, I don't think these verses are primarily talking about individuals as much as they're talking about nations in general who've rebelled against God. And yet of all the nations that have rebelled against God, he mentions in light of that these vessels of mercy. And I believe that he's talking about the nation of Israel. Who God chose for himself and set apart for his own glory. And so it leaves the question, of course, who are the vessels of wrath? That's a hard thing to say, right? And think about. I believe that the vessels of wrath is the whole world. I think that since the fall of Adam and Eve in the garden... Human sin has entered the human genome in every tribe and nation and tongue. Every, all of us have been, quote, prepared for destruction. It's been a preparation by our own choosing to reject God and by his divine judgment over our sin. The point is that we weren't created for any of this. God created us for glory, for love, for purity, for holiness, for righteousness, for exhilaration that's way beyond sin. That all of our attempts at sin are just a a, a little party in the mud compared to what he created us for. We weren't created for sin or for the wrath that he justly lays upon sin. So what's God's active role in all of this destruction being prepared? Can you look in your own Bibles or on the screen if you don't have your own Bibles? Look carefully at verse 22. 
God's role in wrath is just like we see in, in Romans 1. It's a giving over to ourselves more than it's him actively showing his wrath. The only active verb in verse 22 on speaking of God as the subject is God has endured. He's endured our evil patiently, awaiting the perfect time that he would be glorified through evil by showing his just wrath and power over it and by demonstrating his mercy despite it. This is another one of those moments where it's wisest for us, for the sake of our souls and for the sake of our children, to be brave enough to stop, to pause, and to sit and to permit some sanctified discomfort. God allows evil. And God is good. See, the mystery of God allowing evil and manifesting his glory and his mercy is a challenge. And as I've been wrestling with this this week, I had to go back two or three centuries and find some comfort and power in a commentary on Romans 9 by the great Jonathan Edwards. Edwards claims that the existence of evil is necessary for the unique display of God's glory through mercy. And listen to what he says. Let's dig deep here and focus. If it were not right that God should decree and permit and punish sin, there could be no manifestation of God's holiness in hatred of sin or in showing any preference in his providence of godliness before it. There would be no manifestation of God's grace or true goodness if there was no sin to be pardoned, no misery to be saved from. So go back to verse 22. God is glorified, both in showing his wrath and his power, in judging the nations that are being prepared for destruction, and God is glorified by showing his mercy that to those he calls out of darkness and into his marvelous light. He's glorified. Even, even Gentile nations like us, and I look around this world, I feel like this room, and I feel like there's Gentile nations here represented from all over the world, and it's a display of God's mercy in such a powerful way. And that's the point. God glorifies his name, and that's the most powerful, loving thing he could ever do. Your rights, your will, your glory are not important compared to his will, his glory, and his name. Even consider the tension of these two truths. Number one, God is sovereign. He's He's almighty. He's in control. Can you say that, sovereign? Number two, mankind is still responsible before him for our sin. Turn to your neighbor and say, you're still responsible. And I say that this is a tension. Some tensions don't need to be resolved, but upheld. Charles Spurgeon was a 19th century British preacher and abolitionist, 
And he was once asked if he could reconcile these two truths of divine sovereignty and human responsibility. In essence, God is sovereign. He's unconstrained by the devil or angels and the will of billions of human beings. He's in control. And nonetheless, every human being is individually responsible before God for our sin, for our choices, for our very words. So he was once asked, how can these both be true at the same time? It it doesn't fit. Specifically, Charles, how would you reconcile these two truths? And Spurgeon said, I never reconcile friends. You see, these are not enemy truths. These are friends. They work together. I'm passionate about a lot of things. Maybe, maybe a few things. Some of them probably silly. But what I'm most passionate about is evangelism. 22 years ago next week, a young man that was relatively as flawed as I was in a campus ministry in my high school preached to me that Jesus saves sinners. And I heard it. And my perverse self got to respond to the gospel and repent of my sin. And now I know Jesus. And I have friends and family like this. And I get to live a few more years of unwasted life, glorifying God despite my many failures and weaknesses. And I get to be with the risen Jesus forever and ever and ever. And I'm so fascinated that God would choose to use a human element of evangelism to bring me to repentance. And I can't stop being fascinated about it. And yet I've carried false burdens about this passion in many years until I read this book, J.I. Packer's Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. Can you focus in on what he says here? He says, an antimony or a conflict, tension you could say, exists when a pair of principles stand side by side, seemingly irreconcilable, yet both undeniable. There are cogent reasons, convincing reasons for believing each of them. Each rests on clear and solid evidence, but it is a mystery how both can be squared with each other. You see, that each must be true on its own, but you do not see how they can both be true together. Two seemingly incompatible positions must be held together, and both must be treated as true. Such a necessity scandalizes our tidy minds. Didn't say tiny, I said tidy minds, no doubt. But there is no help for it if we are to be loyal to the facts. You see, some things just don't need to be resolved, church, but believed and trusted in. We all know the law of gravity, right? Hopefully you do. You'll find out eventually, right? Apparently, I guess quantum physics is coming, bringing that law into question. I don't know if you're like an expert physics person. What is that? Physicist. 
See, I'm not. Or if you're just normal like me. Either way, it'd be wise for you to obey the law of gravity. You don't have to understand how those reconcile together. You need to obey. You will obey the law of gravity. And there's just some things that we need to trust God in. That age-old question people ask in the war with, in heaven, will Chick-fil-A be open on Sundays? We don't know. We don't know. We just need to trust God, right? Thanks. Listen, God is sovereign. He's almighty, and yet you're still responsible for your actions, your words, and even your thoughts. And all men will face judgment. And I don't need to figure God all out in order to know enough about him to worship him, to get on my face before him, to bow down, and to choose to obey him and to confess the sin of any competing inclination in me that would rise up and compete for worship. I'm a creature. That's my job. That's my gift. God is God. We're his creation. Now, we're his sinful creation. So he's creator, but listen, he's redeemer. He redeems sinners. Verse 25. As indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, literally says this, those who were no people, I will call my people. It goes on. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said of them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. How scandalous. Verse 27, and Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel is as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. Let's think, what do these verses say about redemption? Redemption. God who has no obligation to show compassion, would mercifully open the door to heaven for vessels of destruction. And that's amazing, but what's more amazing is how he does it. The reason that we can be called beloved, verse 25 says, and sons of a living God, or daughters and sons of a living God, children of a living God, verse 26 says, is because Jesus came to become our ransom. Jesus chose to be the vessel of destruction. God's righteous burning wrath, glorifying his own name as he poured it out on Jesus as our substitute. So what does this say about redemption? That he is the redeemer. And to redeem means to take back. That's just what Jesus does actively. I said earlier that God is, is glorified in his wrath and in judging sin. And again, that, that might be hard to process if you put the full burden on yourself to do so. God is glorified in judging sin, and he's also glorified in showing mercy to sinners. Now, I'm going to say something really pointed, but I'll explain it. And that is that you can't believe the first part. 
You can't disbelieve the first part and believe the second part. You can't believe that God's glorified only in showing mercy, but not in judging sin. And here's why. The glorious intersection of God's wrath punishing sinners and God's mercy forgiving sinners is the cross of Jesus Christ where both happen at the same time on a Friday afternoon in history. And on a Sunday morning on the same weekend in history, he rose from the dead, showing that he has the power to take the wrath, the righteous wrath of God upon himself for our sake, and then also defeat it and concede life to us. God is glorified in showing wrath and in forgiving sin at the same time. And there is no message like this. Verse 30. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith, but that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. How unfair. How glorious that we don't have to suffer the just wrath of fair. But we can know the greater mercy triumphing over judgment, as James 2 says. See, every religion on earth says essentially this. Go and achieve salvation. It's man's attempt to get to God, whether it's a religion that calls itself a religion or if it's an ideology that calls itself a political party. Go achieve salvation. Go get to God. But faith in Jesus Christ is just the opposite. It's God coming to us in Jesus Christ and saying, you can't get to me. You can't achieve salvation, but receive what I have achieved. And that scandalizes our desire to try to achieve things and humbles us. And it makes us only capacitated not to please God through our works and performance, but to worship him. That's our job as creatures. And this word attained, the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That's a soft word for what's really there in the Greek. It doesn't just say attain, but lay hold of, seize, capture this salvation by doing nothing. And I feel like Paul is purposefully showing this in contrast for the, the, the religious people who would try their best with the best of their human efforts to get to God without God's help will never get there. Why, verse 32 asks, because they did not pursue it by faith but as if it were based on works, they've stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense. Whoever believes in him, Jesus, will not be put to shame forever and ever and ever. What a name, stumbling stone. He's the lamb of God. He is the mighty, mighty counselor. He's got a lot of great names, but I don't see people saying, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start a church called Rock of Offense. Might be a cool idea, maybe not. But this is a glorious paradox. Human reasoning and the most zealous of, of man-centered religious striving be damned. God flips the script and says, 
I will save the world by being conquered by the world's consequence that justly is owed to them, and then I'll rise again from the dead. How unexpected. Jesus doesn't have to meet your expectations to save your soul. And he doesn't stop there. He gives life. Now let's think, what does this whole passage say about restoration? Let's go back to that pivot verse, verse 22. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, indeed display what verse 23 says, the riches of his glory? Let's stop there. Because make no mistake, God desires to display his glory in every way. Does God want to display his love to you? Yes. But without displaying his glory and his majesty and his righteousness, what we might wrongly construe as love could just be a vessel of destruction. I mean, look at the world and how the world thinks of love. But God's highest aim, you could say his greatest love, is glorifying his own name and the restoration of all things on the earth and in our hearts is him sharing that with us. We were formed in his glorious image. He's creator. We fell into destruction by our own responsibility and he endures us and we're redeemed by the glorious blood of Jesus. And finally, we're restored to his image with the weight of his glory pressing down and displacing all other things in our life, especially in hard times. Now listen, especially in hard times, church, God is not pushing you away. He's restoring you. He's pulling you up into his glory. 2 Corinthians 4, for this slight momentary affliction is preparing in us an eternal weight of glory. That's beyond all comparison. This is restoration. He, God is not just allowing affliction but ordaining it for your good in restoration. He's creator, redeemer, restorer. Now, earlier, as I draw to a close, I, I said that you don't have to agree with me about everything, and I stand by that, but please, please don't miss what the Holy Spirit is wanting to do to restoratively convict you. See, on topics like this, I think we often try to kind of use our reasoning to kind of dampen the blow, to kind of lighten the load of God's glory and his greatness, kind of make, make this all seem more manageable to us. God will not be managed by any man. We don't need to rescue him from the doctrine of divine sovereignty. He doesn't need to be rescued. He must be trusted. We need to be rescued, rescued from a small thinking of God, Listen, temptations and trials will test us anyway. And so often it's the small view of God amidst, a, amidst those that shipwrecks our faith. It's not the trials. It's our small view of God. There's a war being waged for your soul. And to the degree that you trust the sovereignty of God will separate your faith from a faith, a shallow faith that leads to destruction or a deeply rooted faith that powerfully endures. And let me, let me tell you a story as I close that shows this. Vanita Rendell Risner grew up in India. And when she was born, a treatable disease was misdiagnosed. She became paralyzed. By age 14, 
she'd had 21 surgeries that mostly didn't work and was cruelly treated by other children, calling her cripple, cripple. Then she became a Christian in high school. And you'd think, okay, it all goes better there. But she married, had four miscarriages, and her second child died in her husband's arms at the age of two months. Listen to what Vanita wrote. She says, I've read many books about suffering, but they are often so man-centered and nullify or at least diminish the glory, majesty, and sovereignty of God. And therefore, she could find no security or comfort in those. But she goes on. It is radical thinking to say that God wills and ordains our suffering, not just to passively, that he passively allows it, hoping to make the best of it. But as I have grown in my walk, I can see that nothing in this world happens apart from the sovereign will of God. You see, we say to people sometimes, kind of like, from my perspective, oh no, God would never intend you to suffer or to go through hard things. And we kind of want to make God appear compassionate. Yet if his compassion renders him unable to do anything about it, that's not compassion. God is good and God is all-powerful and God is wise. And so we can not know, but know that he knows and trust him and His glory is manifest, not just in how he allows suffering, but plans it, namely in the suffering of his own son on the cross for us. And that's just the point. We can forget all other reasoning and lay it down and repent of it. And then we can go to the table and choose to remember what he's done. Choose to go empty and be filled. Would you stand to your feet with me?